so uh, first rate, no, second rate first mate, John. Yeah. I have breaking news as we welcome listeners back to Out of the Main. Okay. Breaking Hit news. Me. Hit me. Listener Mike is no longer Listener Mike. Uh-oh. Yep. What happened? That's because he is now, for today at least, Podcaster Mike. Oh, well, I was going to ask, do I do I call you um, listener or Mr. Mike? I wasn't sure, but now I guess is, is it Mr. Podcast? We didn't talk about this part. Podcaster Mike. John, explain to the class what uh, listener Mike is doing here in the podcast booth with us. He is sitting here wondering when he gets to have his next smoke. <laughs> but after that, other than that, Very he is shortly. here. <laughs> uh, well, today's focus is going to be on the sort of Yacht Rock era congruent career of David Sanborn. We want to look at David Sanborn, what he was doing with his solo work under the model that you conceived of, of where were they when? Is that how we call it? Where were they then? Then. So where did they go end up after the Yacht Rock era that we as Yacht Rock lovers all know them for? But for me, this is going to be interesting because I did come through the back door. I didn't really know who Sanborn was until 1986 or 87. Then I find out, oh, that dude was in Yacht Rock stuff? <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> and beyond. And beyond, yeah. So um, this will be a good education. So we're actually going to take it chronologically this time so I can understand the beginning, the middle, and, well, not the end. Well, I feel pretty stupid right now because I thought you said Ernie Watts. No, no. David no. Sanborn. No, all your notes no. will still apply. It's fine. Yeah. it's yeah. The reason is, uh, other than the fact that it was free talent, well, talent is a... Uh, <laughs> Questionable term. Yeah, let's be it's because there probably does not exist a bigger fan in the world of David Sanborn and Marcus Miller. Would you agree? There can't be. Not that I know of, especially when you add in that those are the two instruments that he's played all his life, bass and sax. So, uh, yeah, you, you're the one that introduced both of us to Sanborn. Wow. Well, uh, before, are we getting ready to start? Or yes, the mics are on. Are, yeah, turn are your we mic recording? off. I mean, okay. well, it's interesting because I, I have a question and a disclaimer before we start. So the the question is, how come every time I open my mouth, John's hand naturally goes to the dump button? <laughs> That's the, and I, is that just a natural little tick you have? <laughs> yes, yes. I get nervous. Not with all guests, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Apparently not. Well, no, actually my disclaimer is, as you both know, and you've already covered, uh, you know, I have a tremendous amount of respect and absolutely love David Sanborn and Marcus Miller and a lot of the artists that, you know, we'll talk about today and are associated with them and this period in, in particular. But I, I probably will come off as being somewhat negative. Uh, mm, I maybe. can't believe that. I know it's hard, hard mm. to believe I'd be the negative Nelly. But, you know, I really feel like this is a, kind of a study in the a life cycle uh, of an artist, or in this case, more specifically, the life cycle of a chapter uh, for an artist. And uh, yeah. John refers to it or referred to it as uh, the heyday. Yeah, let's look real quick. We won't um, go into every album in detail yet, but we're talking about starting it probably, we think that maybe his rise to where he really sort of arrived was 1979-80, the Hideaway album, yeah. uh, which went n- number two on the jazz charts, and then followed that with Voyeur, another number one. As We Speak went number one. Backstreet, 1983, went number one. He did a live album, Straight to the Heart, that also went to number one in 1984. Double Vision, which he did with Bob James and Marcus Miller, also went number one. 1987, he put out Change of Heart. And Let me guess. 
also to number one? The, no, it did oh, not. Yeah. And then close up after that, which point. is kind of, at, I think the part where this is uh, this era is, is starting to run out of gas, 1988. So that kind of closes this chapter. That's where we're going to differ. Clarification, though. When you say number one, you're talking about Billboard pop charts? Jazz jazz charts. Jazz yeah. charts in that Billboard. Right. Okay. Contemporary jazz or any jazz? I just want just to says jazz. give a yeah. sense for how, like... I don't think they really broke it down yet because they hadn't really named a smooth jazz thing as its own. I think they had a jazz fusion category actually at the time, but, uh, which maybe leads us back real quick to the roots prior to this chapter that we're going to talk about. Um, I'm curious when you first became aware of who David Sanborn was, at what point in time was it? Was it during Yacht Rock as a session guy or he had a solo career that started long before what we're talking about? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to tell you when I first became aware of Sanborn, I I didn't know it was Sanborn. I'll tell you, and maybe for a lot of people, I really feel like uh, 1978 Linda Ronstead, Ooh Baby Baby was probably my first awareness of something that was Sanborn that I didn't know was Sanborn. And I, it just struck me as being, oh my God, you you know, what is that? put him on the map for a lot of people. Hmm. Uh, now, I think there'll be people that, you know, go back to his Paul Butterfield days and all that and, and were fans back as far as, you know, the late 60s. But for me, it was probably 78. Didn't know it was Sanborn. Uh, had a group of friends in high school that actually, uh, a number of them were non-musicians, but they were kind of hip to uh, stuff. We talked about Steely Dan, uh, the same guys that turned me on to Steely Dan also initially turned me on to uh, Sanborn. So I'm going to tell you probably sophomore in high school, 19, you know, 79, 80 is probably when I first became acutely aware of David Sanborn and was buying his stuff. And then John, based on your understanding um, in your study, so he, we know him, if you're just a Yacht Rock fan, you know him as the guy who did the Sax solo and heart to heart, a number of other session things. Yeah. His solo career starts to rise. Do you think concurrently with his session work? Do you and you think those two things were related at all? And Mike, you could chime in on that. As yeah. Well. It, well, it looks like I mean, it did start at that time because he has like four or five albums out even before this Hideaway album. But it was at that time where it seems like the production and the attention of sort of the whole session era musicians and producers started to take notice of him. You started to see a core group of people that produced and worked on his records for the future. I thought that there was a little more uh, change up from album to album, but it really included a lot of the same guys. Producer Michael uh, Colina, uh, Marcus Miller got involved. Um, I, I would say I think Saturday Night Live played a major role in launching not only Sanborn's uh, career as a, as a certainly a prominent sideman, but also solo career. And, and a lot of musicians came out of the Saturday Night Live band. And I, I think that, not necessarily a public awareness, but uh, awareness within the New York uh, uh, session scene. And uh, so I think that probably played a huge role. That's supposedly when he met Marcus Miller. Yeah, I was going to go back real quick to fill in the gap there that on Hideaway, for example, personnel-wise of note, 
Um, Steve Gadd plays drums on several of the cuts. Rick Murata, Marcus Miller, and Neil Jason are the bass players. You've got Hiram Bullock, which is a long time. He's on almost everything. Don Grolnick is on almost everything. Ralph McDonald also. So th- there's that core group that uh, you, you can see when you're bringing in and you're bring, you know, paying for someone like Steve Gadd to come and cut your sessions, you're on a different level than, okay, I've got this band of guys that I've played with a while and I've made a few records. It's like, at this point, the label is starting to put some money up front for you. Yep, and it just so for the Yacht Rock nerds, there's a lot of, uh, not a lot, because you mentioned it's a lot of the same core guys, but you'll see names like Paul Jackson Jr. enter the fray, Tom Scott, of all people, another alto sax player. Yeah. Um, you've got some bellows that come into the picture. Or Buzz the, Yeah. What's that? Buzzy. Buzz. Yeah. Buzz Fate. Yeah. Well, even looking at Hideaway here, two of the songs are co-written by Michael McDonald, to give you a, a yep. Yacht Rock example there. And uh, he also, it was originally released, um, and it did not have a cut on it called... Uh, the Seduction, which was the love theme from American Gigolo. But because of that movie, and that elevated him as it got some single airplay, they then re-released the album with that song on it. They edited down a few of the other tracks, shortened them to make space to add this uh, love theme from Gigolo for... Ooh, did I say Gigolo? American uh, Gigolo. American Gigolo, just to yep. be clear. And um, re-released the album, reissued it. Well, I have a question for you both before we get into the specific records, because I've been pondering this. This is an existential question. Mm. All right. So you mentioned Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Right. Around the same time, um, the Night Court theme becomes big. That's Ernie Watts. Mm-hmm. Um, you remember the, um, what was the uh, uh, Lethal Weapon movie? Right, the soundtrack becomes iconic. It features David Sanborn, yep, along with Eric Clapton, yep. So, like in that like early '80s to mid '80s, this solo sax blaring sound comes into the cultural zeitgeist. Right? Mm-hmm. Was Sanborn a product of that, or is he responsible for that? I think he's more on the front end of that. Yeah. I think a lot of people imitated or people wanted Tried that to. sound. Yeah, yeah. You, you know. Uh, you guys haven't asked me about the the sound uh, yet here, but I know we talked about talking about the sound. Well, you want to go into that? You said you told us in the pre-pro that there was a real interesting historical story of why Sanborn plays the way he does, sounds the way he does, and why he was such a great fit for being in a, as a session guy, which you're asked yeah. to do a lot of different things on any given day. Well, well going back to his sound, there's there's a, a theory. I, I don't know that you can say it's uh, scientifically proven or not, but you know he was diagnosed with polio uh, very young age, like eight years old. And the doctor actually suggested that he uh, take up the saxophone to help with his breathing. And Allegedly, one of the uh, side effects of the polio was uh, that his left arm hung kind of low, and he kind of held it in an unusual way. And if you look at the way Sanborn holds the saxophone, uh, he uh, holds it very close to his body. Mm -hmm. Uh, The mouthpiece goes up into his mouth. Yeah, people say kind of like a clarinet almost. It's a clarinet embouchure, and uh, what that does is it it takes your lower lip uh, and moves it more towards onto the horn, onto the mouthpiece, and more to the meat of the uh, reed, which allows for more of a reedy sound to come through. Now, there's all types of things that contribute to someone's sound equipment. You know, he used high baffle mouthpieces. Uh, he uh, used, you know, very specific Van Doren V16 reeds, all that stuff. But you know what? You could take that same horn, same setup, 
and stick it in somebody else's mouth and it's not going to sound like him at all. And even as bass players, you'd think, you know, if someone picks up a bass that, you know, if you play it or I play it, you know, while technique may vary, it's going to sound like the same bass. And that's absolutely not the case, as was proven by Stanley Clark, Marcus Miller, and Victor Wooten on their album, where they all switch basses. And it's (laughs) like, what the... They all sound like themselves, no matter what bass they play, you know? Tones of the bones, baby. So it's... uh, But I also think, you know, for anybody, it's the sound in their head that they chase. And for Sanborn, you know, grew up playing blues and R&B. And I think that was always the sound in his head. And that's what he always attributed it to. And uh, so that became the sound then to chase was kind of going back to my question is he wasn't the only one. I know there were amateurs that were trying to split their reeds a tiny little bit. Yeah. They thought that was the secret. Yeah. And so now I like all you hear in the mid eighties is sax solos going back to Sophista pop or whatever. Yeah. Every permeation of music, rock and roll, R and B, yacht rock, this. There's also the question about what was on his sax in the mix. And it always seemed like David Sanborn's, no matter who he was playing with, he had this same sort of, like quick slap delay, chorus, flange, phaser. Nobody yep. knew exactly what it was. And I tried to, to look around. I don't know if you have any information on that, Mike, but it, it wasn't, it was also, didn't matter who he played for, it was treated a certain way, almost as if when you called him, that was part of the deals. You had to mix it that way. I don't know. I think too much is made of that. I mean, uh, Sanborn sound does not come from anything that is electronic processing. Now, the the sound on any given recording is going to be a product of that, but the Sanborn sound, and, and we, we'll have an example maybe later. He did some classical recording, w- which was very dry, and it's still Sanborn. I mm-hmm. mean, it's it is yeah. Sanborn, and it doesn't have the processing. And I've seen him live a few times, and you know, some at close range, and and I've read a lot of stuff about him. That sound is, yeah. you know, that's 90% Sanborn on a Mark six alto sax with his setup and his odd air chamber because of the way he, you know, puts the horn in his mouth, the way the embouchure reacts to it. So I would think back to your question, he was on the front end of that and people have been chasing that tone to this day. Still, <laughs> if you go on saxophone forums on the web the young kids are high school kids are chasing that tone. How do I get that tone? Really? Well, there's a growling that he does too while he's playing, and uh, that gives that. So, how does that work? Growling on the sax. So, so two things because uh, they kind of go together. So, uh, a growl is where you uh, sound a note by blowing into the horn and simultaneously uh, growl or hum in your throat. And it creates that almost distorted like sound like you might hear uh, overdrive on a guitar. Mm -hmm. He often paired it with uh, what's called altissimo, which is the very upper register. Right. And, you know, on on a saxophone, most of them are notated, you know, up to uh, a high F, high F sharp or high G. And any notes above that, you have to figure out on... Every unique horn, even two that come off the assembly line back to back, have different fingerings that work to get these upper harmonic altissimo notes. So he paired a lot of uh, growling with those very high notes, and you hear that in some of his most popular recordings. It's very difficult to do. It's very difficult to voice some of those altissimo notes, let alone do it while growling. So well, I think that's the sound of the entrance to Heart to Heart. It, uh, you yeah. just took the words I'll, right out of my mouth. That's Heart to Heart.
And I don't think it starts on an altissimo note, but it certainly gets up into yep. it. And he's uh, bending at the same time as well. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, that's a good segue then to from Yacht Rock. Where were they then? Let's talk about this rise to hit prominence where he becomes this iconic solo artist. Sort of defines, There's then there's many imitators after this, Dave Koz, whoever, Kenny G, whatever you want to say. But like he creates this, now he's the front man, and now he's got Session Cats behind him, and now the label, to your point, is putting money into him. Yeah, I almost put him in the box where um, Mangione was, where it was melodically driven. It, the music was, it, it wasn't quite smooth jazz yet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There was a difference there where the, the songs had verse, chorus, and then maybe a ad lib solo section. It may have been all him playing all this stuff, as opposed to the more uh, smooth jazz format of here's the head, and now we're going to solo a while, and then here's the, the head out, you know? Yeah, this is and, not, I'm going to tell you, and I, I've been a fan of smooth jazz, you know, uh, to varying degrees over the years. This is not smooth jazz. Not at all. Mm-mm. And, and I'll tell you what, you put on and listen to a smooth jazz station for six months, I challenge you to hear one Sanborn tune yeah, right. over that six-month period. It it even the smooth jazz folks don't consider it smooth jazz. I mean, Which is funny, though, because I think a lot of people think of him as the godfather of smooth jazz. You know what? He may have been a guy that laid some groundwork for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think sometimes he uh, crosses over from uh, jazz fusion into what I call instrumental pop. That's where I put it. Yeah, yeah but it, but it's not smooth jazz. It's 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 a different everything. Well, which slice of this era are we talking about? He rattled off all these albums that went to number one. Yes. Where do we, can we agree on what we think is the heyday? Is it a three or four album well, run? Well, I'll tell you what I think, and then Mike can tell me that he probably thinks I'm wrong, or maybe you do agree. I, I, I'll run it down real quick, because I think that Hideaway and Voyeur, I think, establishes his sound and his direction for a while, and I think those two albums are perfect. I think as we get into, as we speak, it starts to be a little repetitive. We get into Backstreet, and I think you're starting to play with a lot more drum machine-y stuff. Um, and it's a little less of the performance aspect. You're replacing, you know, Steve Gadd with a drum machine, essentially. So that, that trade-off never worked for me. Um, the Double Vision album was very, very good, but I think that's closer to smooth jazz. And so I think that he's kind of in a weak area for a while. And then he came back. I think change of heart is an absolute bombshell of an album. I think every song is perfect. I think every song is unique. Maybe Tin Tin's a little over the top, but that album to me is perfect. Well, at least we agree on where this whole thing started. Okay. I mean, I, I think it did start with Hideaway. I think we can all agree on that. Now, he had two albums prior to that. One was a self-titled, I think, Sanborn. And, We've actually featured a couple uh, tracks in yeah. the past. Well, let's, Mike, pick just real quick before you get into your dissertation so we can lay the sonic uh, uh, groundwork. Give us a song off Hideaway to give people a sense for what this album sounded like. Uh uh, well, you can go right to the tune Hideaway, yeah. but I, I wouldn't yep. necessarily. I mean, to me, uh, what ushered in this uh, era of Sanborn are, are two tunes on that al- album, Carly's Song and Lisa. Yep. Uh, and 
I think if someone wants to know what is something that uh, represents Sandboard from this You're going to go to the Voyeur era, album for that one, aren't you? Well, no, I'm going to stay with Hideaway because really? we haven't gotten to Voyeur yet. But no, it's I, Carly's song and Lisa. Oh, are we talking about... If uh, you say who... You're going to tell me what the iconic song is that defines everything Sanborn of that era. You don't think it's run for cover? If we have to put a pin in it, yeah. Yeah, I would argue. I love that tune, as you know. But I, would, I wouldn't necessarily say that's what defines... Sanborn See, because to me that adds in the Marcus Miller factor in Spades, and now we've got the the marriage that is going to give us so much. All right, great well, music. just yeah. so the listeners, like, I need to appease the listeners. Yeah, right, no, appease the listeners. Here's a little bit of the song Hideaway. Here's a little bit of song, a little bit of the song, Carly song. Is that one? Yep. Okay. So now listeners have some context. To me, this sounds still kind of yachty in its chord progressions. Still a lot of organic instrumentation right. to your point, John. And this does not feel at all like uh, smooth jazz. And you're hearing some Fender Rhodes, too, on the Hideaway. Too. And you're hearing some Marcus on Carly's song. So yeah. his first appearance. So and then the next album, can we move to Warrior real quick? Uh, this is the one that has Tom Scott on it. But this is where Marcus starts to get more involved than just being the bass player because he's starting to write some songs with David Sanborn. He plays the Fender Rhodes on this and a Moog bass. So, John, I'm in agreement with you. We're Sanborn novices. The bass line on Run for Cover becomes iconic. Mm-hmm. And let's have listeners. It be, if you're a bass player and you know anything about Sanborn, you've tried to learn this bass line. Yeah, and we've still got, to your point, it's a lot of similar personnel, too. we still got the Michael Kalina production, Buzz Featon, Steve Gadd still on there, Lenny Castro, Ralph McDonald, like you said, Tom Scott. We even got some backup vocals in there with Patty Austin. So He's still flirting with the Yacht Rock uh, personnel, for sure. Well, it's interesting, because Marcus did not produce, you know, I think the misnomer is that Marcus produced... All of Sanborn's albums, or no. a big chunk of... He only yeah. really was the uh, lead producer on, I believe, two of the... Or three of the studio albums, and none, and only I you, think. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't think. Are there any? I don't that, think it's yeah. until close up, or according to my notes, same here. Uh, actually, Backstreet is the first album that Marcus produced. But I think Michael Michael Kalina Kalina is still, still involved on, on that. Yeah, yeah, but uh, Marcus is. Uh, you don't know anything about Sandboard. Why are you? Here? I know. Well, why? Why am I here? <laughs> no, Ahoy, <laughs> no, no. Um, so Voyeur. So yes. you know, I you know, Run for Cover, great tune, love it. Uh, studio version, love it. But I think you know, right out of the gate. You know, let's just say goodbye. I think it just sets the tone, no pun intended, for for the whole album. 
and you know, of course, we said run for cover. All I need is you. Uh, is a classic oh, yeah. Sandborn. Yeah, and a little bit of vocal in that one too. He, he yeah. got a Grammy for yeah, that, you yeah. know, or they got it's only a Grammy. Twenty nine minute album, twenty nine and a half. I noticed that when I listened through this week. Yeah. yeah. And uh, did you uh, give a listen to part of at least uh, part of just for you? The uh, uh, call the piano sax duet. It's uh, it's just such a wonderful uh, sign off tune. Yeah, like a minute and a half. Yeah, yep. and, and yeah. tasty as can be. So. Uh, yeah, a lot to, to enjoy there. So Hiram Bullock is not a name that comes up a ton in Yacht Rock, but he's the same type of thing. He's a session cat. I discovered Hiram Bullock through Sanborn. Way Monster back player. Monster player. Yeah. Now, this is a question I have for you. He was more of an East Coast guy, but he went back and forth. All these guys were going back and yeah. forth back then. I mean, you know, even Will Lee uh, talked about, you know, he, you know, he'd be in California for a session, fly home the next day for a session in New York. So I think right. they, there, there was a lot of back and forth by this point. So this establishes sort of the the Sanborn sound, the Sanborn as a front man. He's popular. He's going to number one. We get, I think, two albums that are kind of extensions of this as we speak in 1982 in Backstreet 1983. I agree with you, John. Maybe not as interesting. But so is this the is this the four album chunk or is there a five or six album chunk, Mike? Okay, well, I'm going to argue that uh, it, it's six albums plus maybe Casino Lights, if you want to call that a Sanborn album. I think as we speak, though. Is that that's the pinnacle of this of this chapter? Really? Uh, I think this is the uh, you this know is buzzworthy right here. It, it, well, it, it, I, I and I do. I, I I truly believe that this is uh, uh, where they really hit their stride. When I say they, Sanborn certainly is you know the lead artist, but you know the with Marcus, I think it's Marcus really hits his stride. I mean, if you listen to the entire album, there's gems. Yeah, I uh, have to go back because that's the one that has the cymbellos on it. Well, Michael, I guess Dan Cimbello co-wrote one song, but yep. go ahead, Michael. Yeah, and in you know, well, Paulina DaCosta's on there, so I know Tom's a, a fan. <laughs> oh, of who's course. that? So, yeah, well, some no-name percussionist. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but the interesting thing, and you know. Sanborn's always been thought of, and rightfully so, as primarily an alto player, or in some circles, only an alto oh, player. Yeah. But uh, five out of the nine songs feature soprano sax. Really? And I think a lot of people listen and don't even know that. Uh, and out of the five that it's featured, four of them, it is the lead instrument throughout the entire tune. And he doesn't really sound like himself on it so much, does he? You know, I, I feel like, like he, he can't does. do some of the same tricks on the... No, but his phrasing, I mean, it's, yeah. it's still oh, yeah, Sanborn to me. Yeah. And you know, the, the other thing that we didn't touch on, one of the things that makes Sanborn Sanborn is the weepy nature no question yeah of particularly when he when he plays ballads or mid-tempo tunes it, i mean it's oh, yeah. literally weep he goes back to the ronstead thing yeah, you know that's the perfect y- way yeah. to describe it and yeah. you know that's probably the most distinct thing i that that's in my mind about him but anyway i i think to, i believe that after as we speak i think things begin to devolve as hmm. i mentioned earlier now john's going to argue but john has a lot more patience for new iterations of groups and acts and all that much more patience than i do i get too emotional in general what was your thought on double vision i know that's a bob james absolutely uh double vision so that belongs up there with included in the pinnacle as well as straight to the heart with the live live, right but But you're not into change of heart huh no i think there's two tunes on change of heart wow that really ring true to me i mean so change of heart i think there was a shift just from a layperson's standpoint. This is, by the way, this is where I... There's no question, sonically, there's a shift. Sonically in approach. 
So this is where I come into the picture. I'm 17 years old, and you introduce me to, hey, check out this. Mm-hmm. And I hear a song called Chicago Song. And to me, this sounds like a pop song with smooth jazz instrumentation. And I feel like this is, again, and then The Dream comes out to, written by Michael Sabello. You've got, like, these are pop songs to me that sound like they're written for radio. Yeah. And that's the first time I think I hear that in his career, is right here. I I agree with you. Uh, I don't know. Because I think, uh, you know, going back to the seduction, I think had that sound, but... Yeah, I mean that you're. you're I I just feel like you know, I I remember getting the Backstreet album, being so excited about it and putting it on, and it was like, Hmm. wait a minute, this is not (laughs) what I signed up for. And now, John, maybe you know, but from a uh, chronological standpoint, is is this potentially the the first digital album? Uh, Backstreet, it's eighty three. No, no, no? because there was stuff done digital, like even in nineteen eighty. Like I know George Benson's um, "Give Me the Night" album. It no, is I mean, a, I mean the first in the Sanborn oh, series that we're talking probably, about. Probably, yeah. Because to me, it screams digital. This is where synths start creeping and it in. it screams drum machine. And oh, I yeah. don't even, I mean, and to me, it's like, uh, wait a minute, what's going on here? Well, it sounded like they were trying to write funk tracks that maybe they heard coming out of Prince or something like that. And that's where the drum machine snuck in. It just feels like they were writing different songs whether it was because of the instrumentation or the instrumentation pushed them that way but it didn't feel like they were jazz compositions as much as they were let's get out the drum machines and the sequences and see what we can come up with Yeah, you know, and, and I feel like this is one of those things that are going to be construed as being negative, and I guess it is. But as much as I love Marcus Miller, that you know, this is the first album that he yeah. really produced, and it's it's very much Marcus Miller. And at times, and then of course on Change Heart, I feel the same way. I almost feel like I'm listening to Marcus Miller solo uh, yes. uh, era yeah. stuff, yeah, yeah. which I love. But when I sign up for Sanborn, yeah. I, I want to hear what I, you know, mm-hmm. enjoy is, is Sanborn. A lot I feel of people like this... were chasing this sound at the time. Though. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you almost couldn't help themselves. And it, it's easy to look back now at it and go, what were they thinking? But at the time, that was what was it's the next cool fresh. thing was going to be. Yeah. Uh, I th- I, maybe they weren't, but it almost feels to me like they were chasing Grammys, too. I mean, they, they, they had to insert, you know, they brought in, uh, you know, songwriters or collaborated with songwriters that, you know, had written pop tunes you know uh jim weatherly you know uh, neither one of us you yeah, know you it, know the grammy like, board will pay more attention if it's yeah got the name so on it, maybe yeah it, it almost was like uh you know i thought i had like this special intimate relationship that nobody else really knew a yeah, whole lot about right. that was now problem. it's That's like what they were trying to like oh my god Yo, well there it's you like, go yeah they, they, they found cool out artist. about me so but uh, and, and I don't know where we are in the chronology, but so double vision of is heart. awesome. So change, let's go to change of heart. This is the okay. one that you're saying. Well, yeah, you talked about Chicago song, and this is kind of what 
made you sour? When you were the comments you were just making, was that about Backstreet? That was about Backstreet, but carries right into Change, Change of, Heart of Heart as well. See, I think they made the course correction here where they did what they wanted to do on Backstreet, but nailed it just right on this one. I think the production on it is stellar for the time. It, there's no question. Again, you know, I, I'm I'm being hypercritical of something that, you know, overall I love. Well, but taste, you, yeah. you got Michael Cimbello coming in and, and all of a sudden now to me it sounds more Michael Cimbello than Sanborn. And, you know, I, I know he was only, I think, involved in the one tune. The well, he's but, a maniac. And he's a maniac. Yeah. <laughs> Thank Robinson's God they didn't cover though. that. Keeping the yacht crib yeah. going. Yeah. Well, Paulina DaCosta is uh, in there, who too. Is oh, Michael Brecker, by the way, is on Electric Wind Instrument. How yeah. about that? Yeah. Well, you know you've... You know, you know it's over. Like sometimes it's just a feeling, right? So yeah. I think this is for you, John. Mm-hmm. 1988 comes around with the close-up album, and to you, is this when you're like, "All right, that's enough." Yeah, I heard the first song "Slam" off of that because that was like the early single. Let's hear like, it. Okay, fire it up. Hold on. All right, go. I heard them like, okay, you're still kind of doing the same thing. And then I got the whole album like, it's just kind of like, yeah, they're doing the same thing, but they've decided not to worry about writing songs anymore. It's just, eh, mail it in. I I I felt like Slam was chasing what um, Chicago Song had or something like that. Exactly. Did you know that Nile Rodgers is playing on Slam? No. Yeah. Does it make you like it anymore? No. So was this for you, Mike? Is the is the shark fully jumped at this point? Yeah. Speaking of things that run their course, yeah, they, I think uh, the uh, shark has been jumped. I think even Sanborn knew that that part had run its course with the close up album because another hand, the next album that he did was a complete change in direction, and they didn't stay that way forever. I don't want to go on to the next album, few albums in detail, but they did come back with sort of a. Almost like a Saturday Night Live band or a, a Paul Schaefer band. More approach. organic. So that was Upfront from 1992 and Hearsay from 1994. Really good records, different sound. It's it's got that, like I say, that um, that Paul Schaefer band almost sound. You got the um, Steve uh, Jordan on drums, yeah. and it, it's got like the James Brown sort of grooves to it. So he's mm-hmm. still doing something different, but brought it back to more groove oriented stuff. Sam Bourne played with James Brown too. Did he? Yeah. yeah. I found some played with hundreds played, of people, no but uh, well, the reason for that, though, just from again my layperson's perspective, you said they achieved the pinnacle of the sound in '87. They tried to replicate it in '88. '82. The, well, I'm talking <laughs> about what he was describing in '87 with this hyper-produced, super-polished, a bit techno-y sound. Techno-y, you know what I mean. '88, um, they replicated. The closer you get to 1990, the closer that is out of mode in a big sure. way. Yeah. So he had to do something. Yes. Because indeed. now that sounds becoming the butt of the joke. It's yeah, like, <laughs> right. Exactly. It's right? true. And it, and it felt that way. Yeah. You know, it's funny though. I think he probably garnered new audience members, you know, uh, by even with Backstreet. I'm sure there's people that probably didn't think Sanborn's career even started until Backstreet because they don't appreciate the older stuff. but So that's where we're, where he was then. Where is he now? Is he still recording records? Still touring? I, still touring. I, I think yeah. he's still touring. He's 78 or going to be 78 years old. Uh, health is good as far as you know everything I've read. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what kind of studio stuff he's still doing. I but, don't either. Uh, it's interesting when you research Sanborn and you try and find out about his personal life. There's so little, There's so little out known. there. Yeah. 
uh, and you know, even the, the trusty Wikipedia's of the world and all that don't really have a lot of information about his personal life. I, I do know, uh, cause John, I think you went to school with his son, uh, Jonathan. Yeah, I never knew him. I was in one class with him, but yeah, yeah. supposedly a, a great bass player. That sounds a lot like Marcus Miller. Imagine that. How did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> Favorite album straight to the heart by far. And uh, Straight to the Art, by the way, is live album. Correct. And it rocks. Some of those songs belong in my Funkin' Jams oh, playlist. It's, I mean, again, if you look at Hideaway and compare the studio to the live, it's it, unbelievable uh, different. And I've seen it live, and, and the energy is incredible. That but, Rock Fans is a cover of 100 Ways on that record. Yep. Yachty. Yeah, very Yachty. And that, but uh, best studio album, I think, is As We Speak. I mean, I, I love double vision voyeur uh hideaway but i think as we speak is what really came together with john you and i differ on that Mm -hmm. you kind of felt like that missed the mark a bit for you i didn't find the songs as interesting as voyeur and hideaway and that just could be because i had those other two on repetition you know that was my what i listened to go back and listen and let me know what you think because i think on, on on another listen i think you would you would maybe change your mind a little bit i don't know Well, do you want lightning to strike me down? Because I'm going to throw a curveball at you. My favorite record is Close Up, 1988. Are you serious? Cue the lightning! All right, Podcaster Mike, let's see what you got. You are going to lead this lightning round. Um, I thought we agreed I was going to lead this round. We're going to have listener John show you how it's done. Oh, okay. It it won't be the first time. Okay, so listener John, what have you got for us? It found it, see? It is found at sea. I kind of spent some time um, going looking at the discography of Sanborn, and of course they've got it broken out as to uh, him as leader and then him as sideman. And there are all kinds of crazy places that he played that you wouldn't even know. I mean, people know some of the obvious ones that we've mentioned, but also some of the others, like Mike, you talked about Linda Ronstadt. You know, David Bowie is one that comes up a lot uh, that yeah. people know about. Uh, the Eagles. Um, Pure Prairie League. Those are all somewhat expected, but James Taylor. Yeah, he played on two songs for Nina. Remember Nina from '99 Luft Balloons? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay, well that's he, a, how the only way I know her. But yeah, mm. well the follow up album was <laughs> a strange title because it um, is in all German, so they just put the title for American as question mark. So. Fraga Das? Yeah, maybe. Anyway, the song is La Smik Dean Pirat Scene, something like that, but it means something about Can I Be Your Pirate or something like that. Now we're back to Zeitgeist. What site are you on? (laughs) Check this out. I'm going to play the Sanborn section. This song is surprisingly smooth. I'm not going to quite go so far as to say Yachty, but it's surprisingly smooth. That's from Nina. I mean, that is weepy and that smooth, is. man. Yeah, that weepiness is right. It was yeah. certainly in there. All right. Before yeah. I cede my time to Podcaster Mike, um, I mentioned uh, the, uh, uh, what is the movie? The... Lethal Weapon. <laughs> Lethal Weapon. Thank you. So the director Richard Donner would always have he liked to have Michael Kamen do his soundtracks, and they, he was Playing personal right friends with Sanborn. Yeah. So Sanborn, first of all, Mike Kamen goes and gets... 
Eric Clapton, and then gets Sanborn, so you get two for the price of one. Fun fact, Clapton's guitar is the sound of rigs, lonely, sensitive, but also given to moments of swaggering arrogance in bursts of violence. Conversely, Sanborn's saxophone is the sound of Murtaugh, who's too old for this shit. Tired, (laughs) world-weary, exasperated, but with a strong, soulful quality that hints at his inner strength and sense of morality. Found at Caesar. Hmm. Well Michael played. I wonder Mike's, if that's how um, Sanborn ended up on a uh, Roger Waters album, the oh, uh, pros and cons of hitchhiking. Playing right into my hands. Oh, right, well, okay. Right. Here we go. It's almost right. like we rehearsed. I, I <laughs> was supposed Mike. to start this Podcast off with you guys know Michael Kamen, and apparently oh, yes. you do. Oh, yeah. and, uh, of I course, found him at sea, as a matter of fact. And he's best known for his, you know, uh, soundtracks and you know X Men, uh, Lethal Weapon, as you said, uh, Die Hard series. I mean, uh, even uh, the uh, Band of Brothers, the HBO yeah. series. So anyway, uh, earlier I talked about the fact that uh, Sanborn uh, did some classical stuff. So Michael Kamen actually wrote uh, a uh, concerto. Mm. Uh, It was called Concerto for Saxophone. And then I think at one point they changed the name or rebranded it as Concerto for Sanborn or Concerto for David Sanborn. It was 1990. And... uh, it, it's it's just a great album. The, the, the first three tunes are the uh, first three movements of uh, the concerto, but it, it's also got some un- interesting stuff. Uh, tune Sasha, and I don't know, John, if you're going to have time to roll any of this or not, but... Uh, you get uh, one song. David sir. Gilmore uh, is on Sasha with uh, Sanborn. Of course, David Gilmore, you mentioned Pink Floyd. They have nice kind of uh, interplay between uh, guitar and sax there. So that's my off the map. Well, you're doing it backwards. That's last. Well, then you can change it up when you uh, <laughs> all right, and so, mi- mix it all down. All right. Is Barry Treasure uh, next at yeah, least? Yeah, Barry Treasure uh, is next. And we're going to go to 1988, Brenda Russell. Mm, uh, do, do you guys know the name Brenda Russell? Oh, yeah. Oh, come on. Okay. Now. So uh, don't have to go into uh, her background. But uh, the tune La Restaurant from her Get Here album. Uh, particularly on the play out uh, is just awesome. Kind of an, a little bit of a wink at Ronstead uh, in Sanborn and Ooh Baby Baby, although, you know, in, entirely different, you know, chord progression and mode and all, all that. Right. But, well, let's, uh, uh, let's play a little of it. Um, and while we're off air, I can correct you on the proper pronunciation of Linda's last name. Here we go. Oh, thank you. <laughs> So that's that's Linda Rodstep, then no, is it? No. Or is that Brenda <laughs> Russell? <laughs> that's Brenda Russell. <laughs> okay. What else you got from Linda Runs? That was your buried treasure, right? Uh, uh, I think so. You got me so turned around right now. All I've got left is a found at sea. sea. Yes. Uh, well, this is gonna work out perfectly then. <laughs> yeah. So found at sea, you know, no self respecting yacht rocker or jazz fusion fan or sandborn fan would probably ever go looking for this. But there's two reasons that Tom's gonna have to like this too. Paulina DeCosta's one. Who's your favorite Scottish blue eyed funk band of all time that's right average white band okay and the tune pick up the pieces so anyway pick up the pieces by uh 
Kenny G and David Sanborn off of Kenny G's uh, At Last Duets album. Mm. Uh, which again, uh, I know a lot of us, even as a Kenny G fan, I wouldn't necessarily uh, be going looking for it, but it's a fantastic version. Uh, little interplay back and forth, little dueling saxes between Kenny G and David Sanborn. And that's my found at sea. Why do you have to love it, Tom? Because Paulina DaCosta's on it. Who do you think plays bass? Marcus Miller. Nope. Willie. Come on. John Taylor. <laughs> You're Nathan East. Oh. And if that's not <laughs> that's enough. That's my guy. I mean, I love well, Nathan you East. you love Nathan but, East. Yeah, but, uh, he's on a list of 10. All right, how about Abel Boreal Jr. on drums? Does that do anything yeah. for you? On uh, drums? Abel Boreal Jr. Oh, yeah. Jr. He played with Linda Ronstadt. Jr.? Right. I don't know how well you nailed the lightning round. Can you at least nail the sign off? Ahoy polloi. Ahoy polloi.